Hear the word of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So ends the reading of God's word. One of the uh, first casualties of the pandemic, or one of the first things that affected was how we interacted with strangers and also our literal neighbors. See, in the before times, if you were walking down the street and a person was walking towards you, if you stepped off the sidewalk to avoid walking near them, such an act would have been considered rude or at least strange. You know, why is that person, you know, stepping into traffic? Yet for most of the pandemic, the opposite has been true. It's polite now in many, or we said many places, to give people more space, even kind. In the before times, it was customary to shake hands. You meet a new person, you introduce yourself, you say your name, you shake hands. And if you had declined to shake, it would have been weird rude even. Yet now the inverse is true. And then before times, if you offered someone a homemade treat, something you've baked in your kitchen, you know, what an honor, what an unexpected pleasure. Now such an act is suspicious. Most of us confine our sharing to, you know, pre-wrapped store-bought goods. In a lot of ways, how we interact with people has been turned upside down. Former kindness, now rudeness. Former rudeness, now kindness. But there's more. In the before times, many of us sought opportunities to interact with our neighbors and with strangers, yet now even uh, interaction, the seeking of interaction, can be perceived as a threat. And for many of us, our homes are more closed than ever, our lives are more private than they've ever been. Now, we have a conundrum, because Christianity is a faith oriented towards the love of neighbors. To love your neighbor as yourself, along with loving God, that's called by Jesus as the summary of the faith. You, you, can, you can encapsulate all of Christianity inside these two phrases, to love God and love your neighbor. You can fulfill every part of the law. In a resurrection church, we've had this word neighbor as a core value of ours. One of the things we care about most as a church is how, how can we love our neighbors in Hintonburg and in Ottawa. We emphasize it, we spend money on it, we put energy behind it. But I think in this new world, a lot of us are left confused about how that actually looks. Because up is down and down is up. And some of us are like, just forget the whole enterprise altogether. Just ignore them. And, and I kind of worry in this COVID era that, that many of us have forgotten or we've neglected the intentional and thoughtful loving of our neighbors. And it's not just their flourishing that's at stake. It's also maybe your own. What's lost for you if you don't obey this command, if you're a Christian? Well, I think Paul's words to the Colossian church about how they interact with their neighbors has a lot to help us. See, Paul wrote to a particular place in time where COVID didn't exist, where there bubonic plague, you know, Spanish flu. None of these things existed, yet I think by the grace of God, that timely word can still speak to us today. So I have four parts to today's text. I want to talk about first, devoted in prayer, second, gracious in speech, third, walk in wisdom, and then kind of as a summary, the way forward. How do we love our neighbors during COVID? Well, the letter to the Colossians, if you're like, I don't know anything about Colossians, I don't know what a Coloss is or whatever, uh, that's fine. It, it has as its major theme, this letter, the lordship of Christ over everything. 
Paul's big idea is Jesus is king. So, okay, you have confusing heresies in your church. Okay, fine. If, you, if you're being persecuted by the Roman authorities, if you're just sort of a young, immature church figuring things out, Paul wants them to know Jesus reigns and rules. And he kind of, he builds out the implications in all these different areas. But as he comes to the end of his letter, Paul spent nearly all of his time talking about the internal life of the church. Okay? So he's talked about what Christ has done for them, how he's remaking them, how they should live with one another, how they should sing together. He covers that briefly. And by the way, spoiler alert, next Sunday we are going to talk about our internal life together as a church during COVID. But anyways, Paul comes to the end of this letter and he's given very little instruction about how they should interact with outsiders, which is people who don't believe in Jesus. Now, I realize that there are some of you listening today, and you identify as such. (laughs) You're like, I am an outsider. I'm a person who does not believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. And maybe it feels strange that, in a sense, we are talking about how we interact with you. Now, one of the reasons we discuss such things openly is because we don't have any intention, nor do we want to hide the things that we believe If you're interested in following Jesus, we think you should do it with eyes wide open. You should know all the facts. You should know how the Bible tells us to interact with outsiders. But also, you can let us know how you're doing. You know, we strive as a church to live up to what this passage calls us to. And if we're we're not, you know, living up to it, you can let us know. But anyways, the first posture, the first thing towards outsiders, towards neighbors, Paul says, is you should be prayerful. He tells the Colossians to continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, you can also translate this word to mean devotion, be devoted in prayer. And that sounds like a word that we use for like romantic relationships. People who are, who are madly in love will say things like, oh, she's totally devoted to him or, or he's totally devoted to her. It's something sort of healthier than obsession, but to be devoted to something, it means you're thinking about it, you're, you're orienting yourself to it regularly. Just as a, a woman thinks of her beloved regularly, so the people of God are to be engaged in prayer in a similar way. Now, Paul also tells them to be watchful in it. To be watchful means that you are, sometimes literally, but you're looking around for things to pray for and about. All the events of the day, all the people you cross paths with, with, they're all subtle cues, suggestions to your mind of things you can be praying for. But it's not just requests. Paul tells them to be watchful with thanksgiving. means they're, they're being watchful not just for more things to ask of God, but things to thank God for. Seeing him as the root of all the good that happens in their day. You know, thankful for the sun rising, but also, you know, a, a great meal at work or, you know, whatever it is. Now, now, Paul, this may sound pretty familiar, pretty normal. But then Paul also asks them to pray for him and his coworkers. That God would open a door for the gospel message. And when that door opens, that Paul and his companions would speak clearly. Now, I think here's the larger thing going on in these instructions about prayer. Paul wants them oriented outward in their prayer lives. He wants them looking for ways to be thankful, looking for things to pray about, being prayerful on his behalf. But the orientation is outward, not inward. Now, if I told you or asked you to sit down and pray, what do you think the first thing that comes to mind to pray about? You can even take a moment to think about that. I bet it's something to do with yourself or your spouse, or someone in your, in your close family. And the reason I would bet that is because that's exactly what comes to mind for me. Oh, I need to pray about something? Well, I got this big meeting coming up. Someone in my family has this health issue. My tip of the tongue prayer requests are for things that are, are very close to me. Now, that's, that's normal. That's fine. You don't need to be ashamed about that. But Paul is trying to counter that gravitational pull. He's saying, lift up your eyes, look around, be watchful for things uh, to pray about. 
move on from just your own stuff to the stuff of others. Now, COVID, in many cases, has drawn our circles of interaction even tighter than they were before. Instead of going to work and, you know, you see people on the bus and, and then you see coworkers at their desk and maybe you're prompted to pray for some of these things along the way, now many of us, you know, work at home by yourself, only see people on, on whatever video calls you have. Or instead of seeing people uh, on, on your rec soccer team every Wednesday night, now you don't. Or instead of having chatting with, or chatting with your neighbors while the kids play outside or you're taking out the garbage, uh, most people are spending more time inside, they're standing further away, they don't linger quite as long. I think what I'm saying is, to use Paul's language, COVID has made it harder than ever to be watchful in prayer. I think it's made it harder than ever to get your eyes off your own problems and, and pray for others. It's hard to be thankful. In fact, based on some very casual research by me, it's hard to pray at all. You know, I've gone through stretches in COVID. Maybe you have too. Maybe during lockdowns where, where prayer was extremely hard. Look, we have been and we will continue to be a church that stresses the importance of loving your neighbors. And one of the first ways we can do that is to pray for them, to be steadfast in it. Now, to pray for your neighbors probably involves knowing their name. Uh, a couple summers ago, actually our very first summer book ever, this was maybe six years ago or something, was called The Art of Neighboring. And in that book, in the very first chapter, what they do is they give you this blank page and they tell you, uh, draw your street that you live on or draw your apartment floor, like whatever kind of place you live in, but draw it from above. And basically, you know, like my house is here, my, my apartment's here or whatever. And you, and you draw in all the other ones around you. And then they tell you, fill in the names of all the people uh, who live in all the different spots. And you can do this over lunch today, fun lunchtime activity if you want. But you should know in advance, it's humbling. Because I can describe a lot of my neighbors by gender or ethnicity or age or anything, but how many names of people did I actually know? Something to think about as you think about praying for your neighbors. Now about the steadfast bit, I want to tell you something I've learned as sort of a prayer amateur, that I need help to pray watchfully and steadfastly for my neighbors. If you leave me to my own devices, if I depend only on my memory, I'm going to have a hard time obeying this command. Because like I said, I just keep circling back to the two or three things, the four things that are close, that are kind of right in front of me. And so I'm, I'm a list person. And I have these little clips with, with dozens of cards on them filled with names and different ideas or whatever. So I'm reminded of things to pray for. And I even sometimes go for, you know, wanderings around my neighborhood. I walk up and down streets mumbling, you know, of all these people that I'm, that I'm trying to remember to pray for. Now, like, you don't need to copy me. That's not sort of in the Bible. But you need to figure out a way to be steadfast. And during COVID, one of the things we still can do is we can pray for our neighbors. That's part one, devoted to prayer. Part two, gracious in speech. Now, we're going to come back to verse five in a second. I want to do it third. But for now, take a look at verse six. Paul instructs these Colossians, your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Now, this instruction makes a couple of assumptions. And the first assumption Paul makes is, you will be talking to outsiders. You will have conversations um, with people who, who don't share the same faith as you. With no outsider to speak with, there will be no one to be gracious toward. Secondly, Paul assumes that your conversations with outsiders will sometimes contain controversial content. Things you disagree over. If you never disagreed with anyone, if things never got tense, well, you'd have no need for grace. I mean, maybe think about it this way. Let's say you're a soccer fan, and maybe you've, you've latched on to our local Ottawa team, Atletico Ottawa. I think that's how you say it. Um, it's Spanish or something. Anyways, but if, but if you are watching a game with other Atletico Ottawa fans, you don't have to be gracious toward them, right? 
Because you're all cheering for the same team. You're all interested in the same outcome. You all boo the same things, all that stuff. But when do you have to be gracious? Well, when you're watching the game with someone who cheers for the Halifax team or the Edmonton team, and, and, they, and they cheer all the opposite things as you, and they boo all the opposite things as you. See, when is grace needed in a conversation with an outsider? Probably when you disagree with them about something or they disagree with you. Paul anticipates, as a Christian, that you'll be regularly speaking with, talking with outsiders, and the content will be such that you'll need to speak graciously. Now, you're like, but I don't like doing that. <laughs> and I was like, yes, you're a typical Canadian. You feel an urge to stay away from controversial topics. I don't want to talk about religion. I don't want to talk about politics. I don't want to talk about whatever. Yet, if we go back to the first thing, Paul said, hey, could you pray for us that there'd be an open door? That, that, that there would be an opportunity to communicate the good news of Christ, even though some people are probably going to find it offensive. Maybe give yourself a little test right now. Think back. When was the last time you had to extend grace to speak graciously to a non-Christian, an outsider? When was the last time you had to, you had to be courteous and kind because the conversation kind of got a little bit tense, the air got a little bit thick? If you can't remember a time... That might be a clue about how bold you should be. You're going to kind of have to dial it up slightly. Or if you think every conversation is like that, then like, okay, maybe you need to take the boldness down slightly. Um, but gracious conversation assumes this kind of interaction. Now, what does it mean to have a speech seasoned with salt? You're like, that sounds delicious. I want French fries. Um, that, that, maybe that's what comes to mind. But maybe that's a clue. What does salt do? Brings out flavor. It takes dishes, you know, potatoes or whatever, that are unappetizing. It makes them appetizing. A salty conversation is one that people are looking forward to. A, a conversation that someone doesn't dread on the other side of it. Kind of tasty. But in addition, salt to an ancient person was a preservative, right? They didn't have fridges. They didn't have ways to keep things for long journeys. And so they would salt it, especially meat. And so we would say, by, by way of definition, a salty conversation is one that doesn't devolve into name-calling, Aggressive argumentation, gossip, slander, these sorts of things. Okay, let's, let's put some of these pieces together. Paul says a Christian should be known for their ability to have interesting, thoughtful, respectful conversations with outsiders that go past surface things, you know, sunshine and sports leagues, to deeper things of life. And oppositely, a Christian should not be known for being aggressive, hard to talk to, mean, unkind, all these things. Now look, you know as well as I, in our society, our current state, our ability to have a conversation with, on a difficult topic with someone who disagrees with us, like that's rapidly disappearing. I mean, it's social media, but it's not just social media. Conversations all over the place uh, are, are rapidly devolving into aggressive name-calling, slander, meanness. And because of that, I think a lot of our conversations just stay on the surface because we're like, well, we don't want to end up in this place where things are aggressive and mean. But public conversations about sexuality, gender, beginning of life, end of life, one's spiritual beliefs, like they've almost become non-existent. And now we've added COVID into that mix. And of, and of course, uh, as I said two weeks ago, if you look at just the discourse, the amount of name-calling, the lack of kindness, empathy, the inability to talk to each other, it's just sad. And Christians, according to Paul, should not be involved in that. Yet we are, <laughs> aren't are we? You see examples of it all over the time. This is not the kind of conversations we're supposed to have if indeed social media can be considered conversations. Now, one of the things that's helped me during the COVID era 
has been rereading, reading and rereading a letter by Martin Luther from hundreds of years ago, 500 some odd years ago, and he wrote a letter called Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. And just for kicks, actually, I printed 10 copies of it. You guys can race each other to the info table afterwards. Uh, you, you, can, you can take it home for free today. It's about uh, nine or 10 pages. It's not a super easy read, so don't have too high of expectations. It's 500 years old and translated. But anyways, Luther says something so helpful, and it's been extremely helpful to me. He says, in a plague, everyone, and he's talking about Christians, but he says, everyone can be right and everyone can be wrong. And what he means is, you can't tell from the outside if someone is fulfilling their Christian duty or not. If they flee, they may be fleeing for the wrong reasons, and if they stay, they may be staying for the wrong reasons. He says to, to flee a plague, literally in, in their time, by moving away, in our time we might say by isolating yourself, that's, that's a fulfillment of the sixth command, to preserve life. Your own, the lives of your family, others you might infect. Quarantine's a biblical idea, Leviticus 12 and 13. Anyways, he says, it, it's possible to flee a plague, for Christian reasons, but it's also possible to, to flee a plague for selfish reasons or because you refuse to trust God with your health. But staying, but, but staying in the face of a plague, refusing to isolate yourself, refusing to flee, that may also be a Christian duty. You may be working somewhere to save those who cannot flee, who cannot isolate themselves, but also staying, not fleeing during a pandemic may also be a refusal to trust God. You may be disobeying the command to preserve life. Luther's point, basically, is you can see someone's actions and still be confused about their motives. And this is exactly true in the COVID era, that just because someone takes an action does not mean you automatically know why they did it. And they may be right or they may be wrong, and there's only one way you can find out. You can talk to them. <laughs> you, can, you can actually ask them. You can have a conversation, not necessarily to convince, but to learn to come to an understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. And I'm not sure that we just ask enough questions in general. What we naturally do is, well, we learn somehow they have a different stance than us on COVID or sexuality or gender or politics or municipal zoning laws, something. And we're like, I'm just, just retreating. I'm <laughs> just backing away. I don't think that's what Paul commands. I don't think that's what he has in mind. He's telling us we should move forward with gracious, salty speech, understanding others. And also, he says, you know, learning to give our own answers and I think for many of us, COVID has moved us away from these kinds of conversations. As our circles shrunk, so did the opportunities to talk regularly with others. And if you're a Christian, if you're a person who follows Jesus, you have to find ways to do this. It'll look a hundred different ways, but gracious, well-seasoned conversation is what Paul has in mind. Okay, third, walk in wisdom. We'll go back to verse 5 where Paul says what I just said. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of the time. Now to walk means your whole life. Not, not just like literally walking, but your whole life. And wisdom means the application of knowledge on a case-by-case -case basis. See, wisdom is not about knowing right things. It's about doing right things. So for instance, what, what does a wise investment look like? That depends on who's investing, how much money they have, how long till they retire. There's like a hundred things it depends on. There isn't one answer for everyone. What does it mean to walk in wisdom towards outsiders? It depends. Paul leaves the specific out, specifics out. He doesn't really tell you, tell, tell you. He offers this general principle, be wise, walk wisely, make good use of the time, and then says, now you figure it out. I think many of you are likely aware of the five love languages, which was originally a book by this guy named Gary Chapman, uh, about the five ways that people experience love. And the five, if you're like, I don't know what they are, I've never heard of this before, it, the five are this, very quickly, words of affirmation, 
acts of service, quality time, physical touch, and receiving gifts. And Chapman's thesis, his big idea is, if you want to be a good partner in marriage, he originally wrote it for married couples, you should figure out, how does my spouse receive love? What feels like love to them? And then try to meet their needs. So if your spouse feels loved when you spend good time together, try to spend more time together. If your spouse feels loved when, uh, when you do acts of service, then you should, you know, empty the dishwasher and mop the floors or whatever. Now, I have a couple quibbles with Chapman's theory, but that's not my main point. My point is, when you read that book for the first time, you tend to think, how do I experience love? It's almost unavoidable. You read it and you, you subconsciously think, oh, how do, I, how do I want to be loved and how do I like to give love? But that's not what he wrote the book about. <laughs> but we're instinctively self-centered. We read the book and we, didn't, we don't necessarily think of the other people in your life. We think, well, I like doing acts of service and I don't like quality time, so I'll just do that. Uh, that that's not how Chapman's book works. He intended as a guide for how to love another person in the way that they feel loved, not in the way that you decided you will give love. Now, what does that have to do with this idea of walking in wisdom? I think the temptation is to take this text and try to figure out, how do I like to interact with people? What, what do I feel good at? And then I'm just going to go do that. But I think that kind of gets Paul's command backwards. I think to walk in wisdom towards outsiders means you try to see the world from their point of view, figure out what feels loving to them, and then try to meet them there. Now, COVID, again, has made this hard. Because lots of you, you live you know, near or even with people who disagree with you on how to handle a pandemic. And you're cautious and they're not. Or they're cautious and you're not. And you have different thoughts on vaccine passports and, and, and a hundred different things. If you are trying to love that neighbor and walk in wisdom towards them, it means not imposing your way of doing things on them because this is how I like to love people, you must adapt to me. No, no, Paul is saying you adapt to them. Now that doesn't mean you have to put yourself at risk or put them at risk. It just means you consider the world from their point of view. And you ask the question, what is the most loving and wise thing I can do for this person or, the, or this family right now? And maybe you can't do what you want to do. Well, what can you do? What, what would they accept? There's got to be an opportunity somewhere, somehow. Paul is just pushing us towards this, this radically different way of life than what we would do if we were left to our own devices. He's calling us to this outward-focused uh, prayer, to kind and gentle conversation, and a kind of neighbor love, a kind of wisdom that costs us personally. But that kind of leads us to part four, the way forward. And I want to answer the unasked question that lies underneath the pa this passage, which is, how do we do that? How do we get to the point where, where we can do that? Especially during COVID, everything's more complicated. Everything's harder. We're, we're more tired. We have less resources than ever. How do, how do we do that? The answer is, you can't. Not really. Not without help. Not without a new heart. See, my worry with a sermon like this is you'll leave today and you'll just decide, I'm going to redouble my efforts. I'm going to really grit my teeth this week. And I'm really going to do it. I'm really going to love my neighbors. Well, that ends in two ways. Most likely, you'll come back next week more guilty and ashamed because you failed. Or, more dangerously, you'll succeed. And you'll come back more prideful and more haughty than when you left this week. So what do we do? <laughs> well, if you're going to redouble your efforts in any direction, redouble them to understand what Jesus has done for you. See, the grand story of the universe is God loved his neighbors first. 
And his neighbors, which is you and me, all of us, we weren't interested in being loved. And at every step, we resisted and we rebelled and we pushed him off. But he endured. He persisted in his love for us. Now, he didn't pray for us exactly, but he spoke kindly to us. He sent us prophets and priests and kings. He was always gracious, always long-suffering. He knew how to answer every person. He walked in wisdom towards people. He made the best use of time because he's God. But when the time was right, the scriptures say, he demonstrated his love for his neighbors by sending his son to die for their sin. So that, so my friends, like God went first. He, he loved us. He loved you. And he loved us when we disagreed about everything. <laughs> and so gritting your teeth, redoubling your efforts, trying harder, like that's not really going to get you that far. What really changes, uh, it, what really changes things in your heart is realizing that you were the worst, most vengeful, most spiteful, most disagreeable neighbor. And Jesus died for you anyways. And I'm telling you, when that gets into your heart, when that kind of sinks deep down, it can change not just how you act towards your neighbors because you really muscled yourself up to do it. It can change how you feel towards them as well. And you won't always just have to be loving. You will actually become a loving person because of the way that God has loved you. So like my hope and prayer for us is that we become a church of great neighbors. And what a joy it would be uh, for me as a pastor. But more importantly, what a picture that would be of the way that God has loved us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you, in, in, the, in the person, the man, Jesus Christ, lived out what Colossians 4 says. You've done all these things. You've gone first. You've loved us when we were unlovable. You died for us when we weren't interested in having anyone die for us. Please change us. Give us new hearts and new minds that love you and that in turn love our neighbors as ourselves. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.